Hello and welcome to the first episode of Mormons, Mystics, and Nuance. This is a podcast where we focus on reconstruction and recontextualization through an integration of science, psychology, consciousness, and philosophy. And um, the goal of this podcast is to present somewhat of a theory of everything, um, just to tie in a whole bunch of different fields of study and research and methods of thought. So my name is Gabe and my co-host Eldon. I'm going to drop into a discussion in a few minutes that we had uh, just covering some of these topics um, that we want to tie in together. Uh, we're both new to podcasting, so you'll have to bear with us as we uh, find our feet with this and, and find our pace. So this initial episode is going to be an introduction to some of these topics, not necessarily in a comprehensive uh, overview or framework. Um, the second episode is is going to be a reading of a piece that I wrote that basically connects all of this into a theory of everything. Um, basically, we want to tie in um, some really hard science stuff, uh, quantum physics, um, but but more like the philosophical implications of quantum physics without much, you know, without hand waving, um, but really looking at these studies, double slit exper experiment, uh, quantum entanglement, uh, quantum field theory. Um, tie in Jungian psychology and and then also some of this research that's coming out uh, recently within Mormon history, basically on this psychedelic uh, working hypothesis on psychedelic origins of Mormonism, um, but more in general, just like altered states of consciousness and how that may have affected certain things like First Vision, um, Book Mormon translation of the production of the Book of Mormon, but also these group experiences in Kirtland and Nauvoo. There was a, uh, an article published in, I believe it's the Journal of Psychedelics in 2019 by a retired uh, physician and then a few other authors, um, experts in psychedelics and consciousness and Mormon history. It's a very fascinating paper that basically talks about um, psychedelics or entheogens. Entheogens is just another name referencing basically the creation of God within us um, and describing the different states of consciousness they, uh, um, they produce and how that maps onto different experiences in Mormonism. And then also just the different possible substances that could be used and in their role in Native American religion um, the different characteristics of these substances and, and how they potentially could be um, linked to some of the things that we saw in the early church. Um, in one of the concepts that is particularly, I think, crucial to understanding, and I think recontextualizing Mormonism is this concept of mystical states. Um, which doesn't sound super scientific, but this is the term that science uses, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, but basically, you know, in Mormonism, you've got the, the first vision, which is presented as this very unique, singular experience uh, of seeing God and Jesus Christ that, you know, Gordon B. Hinckley describes as the most amazing thing, uh, most miraculous thing that happens in Jesus Christ or the biggest fraud. Um, and it's, yeah, definitely set up by this, as this litmus test of your faith. Um, and that, that's understandable. Um, when you're invested and involved, it's kind of hard to, to take a step back and look at that objectively um, because you potentially have, I mean, you've got your eternal salvation, uh, marriage, 
um, and just your whole philosophy tied up in that. But if you take a step back from it, um, look at it objectively, kind of withhold judgment for a bit, you'll see that you know, there is this concept in uh, psychological research and research on religion of these mystical experiences. And these are experiences, states of consciousness. Um, you can view this from both just like a purely materialist neurobiological perspective um, or a more metaphysical, idealist, um, universal, subconscious, uh, metaphysical, transpersonal perspective as well. But basically these experiences uh, generally are characterized by a tr transcendence of space and time, indescribable bliss, and sometimes indescribable um, fear and darkness as well. Uh, generally a oneness with the universe, kind of emerging with the divine, emerging with God, uh, a deep sense of knowing, you know, these aren't information that you just learn or believe, but I mean, you, you know it, an ineffability or an inability to describe these experiences within the constructs of language. And so these not only happen throughout history, throughout religious history, um, and often these religious mystics that have these experiences, you know, even though they are, can be somewhat different, they have these characteristics that have a lot of overlap. And this isn't, you know, necessarily a very, um, there's a bit of a spectrum of these experiences, so they don't necessarily check all the boxes, but there's enough of, um, and there's enough of a signal within the noise um, that is categorized by by research and so these happen throughout religious history but you know particularly and they still happen today um but particularly where joseph smith was at um both chronologically this was the second great awakening where these were happening quite often and where he was at geographically a lot of these experiences were happening and being published about um and interestingly enough you know joseph smith's a very polarizing character um, because of some of the things that he did. So it's it's easier to get sucked into this false dichotomy of like, you know, it was all true and he's this amazing prophet or it was just all made up and, and is a lie. Um, but I think it's interesting that his experiences, both the first vision, um, you know, I know there are several accounts, different accounts. So there's a bit of a question of how much of this is real and how much of this is like a composite of other experiences that were made up, um, but but also the experiences in Doctrine and Covenants, um, just how many of these boxes it checks that you actually, you know, would be hard to um, make this up if you hadn't experienced some of these things yourself. Um, so more than just looking at it, though, from a research perspective, we also want to dive into just like what what's the philosophical implications um, of these and the connection between them and, um, you know, how we experience reality and the, the phenomenon of, of consciousness. You know, another interesting thing that we want to cover and talk about is the, you know, production of the Book of Mormon and how the similarities between that and a bunch of other works that would fall under like channeled works or automatic writing, some using objects, um, others not trans-like states, but, you know, a few things that have always been pre presented as like a false dichotomy of it's true or it's false. There's no middle ground, um, but trying to take a step back, take a meta, uh, view at things and piecing things together scientifically, but also philosophically and tying in all these different, um, all these different silos of research and, um, 
schools of thought. Um, where this gets interesting in terms of psychedelics is they have these, so we've got these mystical experiences um, that were pretty well defined and studied, um, but then a couple overlaps with some research into psychedelics. So several decades ago, there was Walter Pankey's Good Friday experiment where they took 10 theology students and gave them a high dose of psilocybin, had them listen to a religious sermon and then they just have these full-blown mystical experiences um, on a 25-year follow-up, nine out of the 10 that they, you know, they were able to get a hold of nine of them. And these were theology students, but they rated it as one of the most spiritual, spiritually significant experiences in their life. So, you know, it's, it's very easy given kind of the stigmatization of substances in Mormonism and culture in general to hear the experiences occasioned by them being compared to religious experiences. And, and that sounds sacrilegious, but, you know, trying to be objective and considering these are theology students that had, you know, profoundly spiritual experiences and questioning, like, what is, what's the philosophical implication of that? Um, more recent in history, you know, so research in psychedelics stopped for a while. Um, in, 1999, Roland Griffiths, he's a psychiatrist. He restarted psilocybin research at John Hopkins University. He'd already been in um, meditation, exploring consciousness since 1994, I believe. But he restarted psilocybin research and again, gave uh, the participants a high dose of psilocybin and was very blown away to see, um, and we'll put a TED talk link in the show notes, he was blown away to see that the experiences they had really matched up um, to these these mystical experiences, which they have their own questionnaires and criteria, a couple different rating scales for these mystical experiences. So, so it is objectively, um, we're looking at these things objectively. So, and these experiences also are very profoundly um, impactful on the participants or the individual's life. And so that's another thing too, you know, it's easy to dismiss Joseph Smith as I, you know, he didn't believe in any of these things. It was just, just a fraud. Um, but I think you have to consider just how meaningful and impactful these experiences are and explore what the implications of that, you know, is it really just this either or, um, or is there not so much a, a middle ground or a nuanced view, but just kind of a, a more comprehensive framework that we can recontextualize this experience within all these other experiences that were um, with all these other experiences that were happening. And same thing with the Book of Mormon as well, um, rather than just the narrative that you hear that, you know, everything's true and, you know, this is um, absolutely correct or it's all false. Um, so those are the, um, it's just kind of interview uh, or introduction of the, some of the topics we discussed before this video. Um, we're going to bring on some really fascinating guests and maybe join with some other co-hosts uh, in the future. We've got some uh, connections, Mormon historians, experts in um, these different fields, consciousness, um, some new age uh, topics. And um, we also want to reframe the discussion, not just necessarily about psychedelics, but just about states of consciousness and view this, I mean, this, these types of experiences, these different states of consciousness, they are destinations or states of consciousness with a bunch of different mo modalities to get there um, from Eastern philosophy, meditation, breath work, 
whatnot. So rather than, again, just staying in a silo and, and sticking with a specific um, explanation, zooming out again and taking it a more holistic um, view of this. So we're excited to have you join us and hope you enjoy this first discussion and stick with us. And so we can have some really fascinating discussion. Um, we'll, we're going to be trying to present a theory of everything where everything fits together. Um, maybe not have all the answers, but I think there really is a, um, a comprehensive view that you can take a look at. Um, but also if you don't want to, you don't need to buy into that uh, comprehensive framework. We want to be objective and discuss some of these topics that are really fascinating and relevant, um, you know, automatic writing, um, you can view these from a metaphysical perspective or just a purely materialist, you know, these things are coming from the subconscious. You can view these state experiences, these mystical experiences from a more metaphysical, spiritual perspective, or just strictly from a neurobi neurobiological perspective. Um, and I think whatever perspective you're coming from, uh, you'll enjoy, uh, the discussions that we have and the different things that we, um, explore. So thanks for joining us and enjoy the episode. Now, all of this is kind of like putting these things together of we've got evidence of this happening over here. We've got evidence of this happening over here. But I think what's uh, maybe what what has helped me through my transition away from being active in, in the Mormon church is making these connections, like finding evidence for things. Um, new ways of thinking about these to integrate them into into how they sit, right? Because people talk about cognitive dissonance and it's like, that doesn't fit uh, because I know this and then the church is telling me this, well, there's this cognitive dissonance because of this gap between them. But I think the more I, the more I look into this stuff, the more I research this, the more I talk about this, it becomes clear that, um, that there is a way to to kind of bridge that gap, not, not necessarily that the church is what it says it is, but things that happened that the church says, try to explain that outside of our narrative, there are alternative narratives. And yeah, and I think I mean, you raised a good point is not necessarily about psychedelics. And that's what, you know, that, that book by Cody is good, but I think what really helped me actually from reading that book was just kind of the focus on not so, not so much about psychedelics, but just mystical states as a, a state of being or a state of awareness or consciousness and how um, it is a mountain peak. Um, there's a bunch of different ways to get there and the ways actually don't matter so much because it, you know, I, I think I've seen a lot of people say, oh, yeah, Joseph Smith was, you know, doing psychedelics or doing mushrooms, which to somebody who doesn't know anything about consciousness or meditation or, you know, psychedelics or anything sounds really dismissive. And you just think of it as like doing, playing tricks on your mind or like hallucinations because some people call them hallucinogens. We're really focusing on like, hey, these are states of consciousness. Um, there was a, you know, they've done fMRI studies where like somebody using psilocybin and somebody who's a very practiced uh, meditator meditating and showing that the same neural pathways, the same brain activity was happening. So like stepping away from 
so much the mode of transportation focusing on like the destination where they're at. Um, and then because yeah, when you, when you read stuff like the CES letter and you don't have any awareness of this, I mean, these are really crazy claims of like seeing an angel and getting golden plates and seeing God and Jesus. And so like, oh yeah, it's obviously it's true. And those, those things happened and it's amazing. That's what Gordon B. Hinckley, Gordon B. Hinckley said, or it's like the biggest fraud. Um, but when you have some knowledge and understanding of how the brain works and how we interpret what we see and these experiences as not necessarily not being artifacts of the brain, but this idea that these states of consciousness kind of lift some of the filters that we've learned to interpret reality in our conscious experience as from child, you know, from being a baby, as we kind of piece together the world, um, lifting those filters, you see that there are some really, I mean, there's actually a middle ground or a much deeper meaning that, yeah, these experiences actually, it's really, it's kind of crazy to think that all of these people are colluding and making up these experiences. It's kind of easier to, to see some of the stuff Joseph Smith did and say like, oh yeah, he was a fraud or he was doing this for this motivation. But then for him, you, you also have to account for all these other people that were just less easily dismissed as frauds that were claiming these really miraculous things. And so just kind of make it a more meta discussion of like, okay, what's going on here? What does this teach us about reality and spirituality? Um, so yeah, focusing on those experiences and what it means spiritually. And is there some middle ground where he actually felt like he did see these things or, um, yeah, maybe believed, you know, there's evidence that he had props for the Book of Mormon, but um, even with the, the Book of Mormon, this is another concept is automatic writing. If you look at the Book of Mormon, his concept of, you know, looking at the stone, focusing on the stone in the hat and putting a hat up to his eyes, the focusing on a stone, having something to focus your awareness on one point, very similar to this idea of crystal balls. Um, and there's a lot of people that use or have used this method. It's called scrying and even using the hat. Um, it's sensory deprivation, which is another thing that can get people in these states of um, awareness where they're kind of getting into these trance-like states. And there's a lot of books um, and creative pieces that have been produced in a similar manner, either using a stone or trance-like states or Ouija boards that are very similar to a lot of these amazing claims of the Book of Mormon in terms of the speed and how inspiring they are. And again, it's sort of this middle ground of, yeah, there's actually a, a narrative where he maybe believed, likely believed that he was channeling this from some otherworldly realm, like a lot of these other people believed and claimed that they were doing. And so there's, there's a middle ground that's not really on the awareness of people when they're, when they're only presented with the option of it's true and it's exactly what he claimed, or it's all made up um, just because these aren't super common concepts that we talk about. Yeah. I think that this it's, I think it's easy to go into just the extreme view that 
he was a bad guy and did bad things from the beginning. I think he certainly had selfish tendencies and he certainly had um, a strong ego. And I think he certainly took advantage of people and did some real damage with the things, kind of a wake of damage that was left behind him. Uh, and so the, the idea of states of consciousness also, there may be people listening who are kind of newer to uh, thinking about those things. And I would say that like sleep is one, uh, that's a different state of consciousness. There's uh, the spaces between fully being awake and fully being asleep, at least as, as, as I'm gonna, as I would describe it. I'm sure there's scientific uh, definitions for all of that, but it's almost like you wake up in the morning, how you're feeling, that's one state of mind that you're in. By the end of the day, after you've been through the day, it's kind of a different state of mind. And maybe those aren't as extreme as what, like uh, uh, psychedelics or something could, could do for changing that state of mind. They do, um, they do correspond with uh, the different brain waves, though. Have you, I haven't had it in a while, but have you had, so there's the hypnagogic state, which is when you're in like theta brain waves right before you fall asleep and you start hearing voices. Have you had that? It, it's been I years have, for me. I, I, I don't think I've heard voices, but I've been okay. in that state in between sleep and wakefulness at times. And uh, I often get these images in my mind. I mean, mm. it's almost like uh, it's almost like a uh, lucid dream mm -hmm. where you can kind of control the all the elements of the dream, except I, I wish it was a little bit more control, but it, it's, I can kind of have some impacts and more control than others. Some dreams, I just feel like I'm totally subject to, uh, and other dreams, I feel like I have a little bit more control and there's been that state of mind. Sometimes I could say, yeah, I've had it for, for a while, but I used to, and it's, it's funny cause I was just reading a, uh, fable haven to my kids, um, which is very psychedelic in what it's talking about because it's these kids and they are they go to their grand, grandpa's house and they find out that he is the caretaker for a magic magical preserve and there's a big there's this big magical cow that produces milk and if you drink the milk every day all the animals like the hummingbirds and stuff they turn into fairies and the fairies also have to drink the milk but it's it's very interesting um once you're aware of just the the concept of um states of consciousness and but yeah they were they were also talking about oh yeah they were talking about blue lotus um the other yeah. day and how that like is that i mean that's that was a uh, psychedelic used by egyptians and then they were talking egyptians. about the hypnagogic states too and states of awareness because the grandmother got turned into a chicken and then she was trying to explain about how it was really hard for her to listen to the kids as the chicken because she's like, you know, it's like that state right before you fall asleep when you start hearing voices. Like, that's what your voice is. I was like, oh, my gosh, this guy knows his, like, states yeah. of consciousness. Um, uh, that's interesting. It, yeah. Who was it? I, I want to say Nikola Tesla, but I could be wrong. But there was another inventor or... In, from a historical figures, someone who, who was a, a great mind and they would fall asleep holding like a lead ball. Jung, Jung would do that. Oh yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. he, I and did he that. would drop it. 
it, how'd that turn out? <laughs> uh, it was interesting. So I forget who, I think it was a podcast. I had, I had worked with a coach who he actually gave me an active imagination exercise um, to do. Um, and I did that. So active imagination, if you're not aware of Carl Jung had um, a activity, a exercise that he did on himself where he sort of put himself in a lucid dreaming state. So he got into this uh, like hypnagogic or beta wave state of consciousness where he, he would basically close his eyes and then wait until other things appeared in his consciousness. But then he would just play his part. He wouldn't try to control. So it wasn't quite a lucid dream. And then he would just kind of interact with the other parts and realize that they were representing a part of his consciousness. But I think he was the one that did this. Um, so yeah, I did. I did this. He was like a steel ball that he would hold off of his bed while he was falling asleep. And then when he would be just close enough to sleep that his grip would loosen and then the ball would drop on the floor, it would bring him out of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, like, it wouldn't just like startle him out of it. It was just keeping him kind of right in that zone between being asleep and being awake. Yoga. Have you ever done yoga Nidra? No. Yoga Nidra is a, a kind of form of meditation that uh, takes you into theta hypnagogic states. Um, it's supposed to like gives you the benefit of like hours of sleep and less time. Um, so when you say theta waves, brain waves that can be seen under a machine, like an MRI that can, uh, that describe kind of where you're at in those consciousness levels. Yeah. I don't know too much about it. My, my exposure with it is through binaural beats. So I have, uh, an app that does different binaural beats, which are, you have a frequency in the one ear and then a frequency in the other ear. Since you can't have sounds, I guess at the low, at the level of frequency that you really need, um, they realize that your brain subtracts the frequency from one ear to the other ear. And so you can listen to these um, tracks on the internet. And yeah, I think alpha, no, delta is like deep sleep. So this is the frequency of brain waves in your, uh, in your brain. I don't know how they technically measure it, but yeah, delta is sleep. And then alpha and theta, I think are uh, kind of those deeper, almost sleeping states or you're in theta when you just wake up and then there's beta and gamma. I forget which ones or which one of is like a really hyper-focused state. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned Jung who, if nobody, if you don't know, Carl Jung was, Jung was a um, Swiss psychologist, psychoanalyst around the time of uh, Freud and actually worked closely with Freud for a while. But we'll be talking about some of Jung's ideas in this podcast at various times. Yeah, I think, um, I guess since we talked about automatic writing, so automatic writing is this concept of people being in these different states and just writing things. And it's sometimes used in therapy. And um, this is something I've been thinking about lately. When it's used in therapy, and it, I mean, you can do this on a metaphysical level of you believed in a collective unconscious um, of a connection between the you know, way of a personal unconscious or subconscious. And then there's a collective unconscious that, that we all share. Um, and 
But if you don't believe in the metaphysical transpersonal stuff, this automatic writing is viewed as just things coming up from your personal subconscious. And there's an interesting, I think it was a Sunstone article that was comparing all these different automatic writing. We can put this in the show notes too. Um, automatic writing pieces. And one of them was, yeah, they showed that some of the stuff that she remembered actually was back in her childhood that was coming up. She didn't remember it consciously, but you know, they talked to somebody else and realized, oh yeah, her stairs of her house were painted that color. But I think that's a fascinating, I mean, if you're looking at the Book of Mormon within that context, um, I think there's some interesting things that correspond. The different themes in the Book of Mormon correspond, I think, with aspects of Joseph Smith's personality. Um, you've got this like duality between the Nephites and the Lamanites, this like light and dark, um, which, you know, very Jungian thing, a shadow. Um, and I think, I think Joseph Smith was a very conflicted person um, throughout his life. And I think that Nephite Lamanite rivalry and ultimately the Lamanites winning um, is fascinating. The idea that Nephi kills Laban, he, yeah, he excuses, very telling. Yeah, excuses something that's wrong um, because of the greater good, you know, to bring this book because otherwise a nation would perish in unbelief. Um, this is this pious fraud concept that Dan Vogel, um, is, I think one of the big proponents proponents of is that, you know, Joseph Smith, a pious fraud is somebody who commits fraud or justifies doing things that aren't truthful for a greater good. And I think if you look at, you know, this is one of the fascinating things about mystical experiences is that these are often described as realer than real life. And so, I mean, these aren't necessarily visions or like different. So people talk about the different witnesses and talk about, oh, it's just like, it's just like a guided meditation. I mean, maybe, but some of these instances, um, near-death experiences also have a lot of overlap with these mystical experiences, but people say, yeah, this was realer than real life. And so these are profoundly impactful on these people. And so I think it's, it really goes in the face of research on mystical experiences to say that Joseph Smith didn't, you know, that there's not a chance that he believed these things. Um, and I, th I mean, I think if you look at the different theophanies he has in Doctrine and Covenants and the first vision, like a lot of these things line up with um, psychedelic experiences. And some people have even gone so far as to say like, oh yeah, Amanita muscaria, the specific mushroom that was present in upstate New York, like, you know, the things that he was having, not being able to talk and feeling like he was going to the depths of hell and like not being able to move and then suddenly being delivered into, um, you know, this rapturous moment, like these kind of map up to what, you know, intoxication by this specific, you know, mushroom would be. Um, but yeah, so a lot of his things line up in a way with these mystical experiences that if he was making it all up, I think it really just would be unlikely that he'd be able to check all these boxes. So I think when you realize that, um, you have to consider that it's pretty likely that he believed in some degree what he was teaching or that he was having these experiences. Um, even one of the things, I mean, there's so many things that don't line up if you just go the way of like, oh, it's all a fraud. Um, I think the fourth visit to like meet Moroni, he was supposed to go and like have the 
carriage painted black and he was taking Emma and they were supposed to be all in black. Um, and D. Yeah. Michael Quinn's book talks about like there's a receipt that he went and bought black paint at, you know, a store in Palmyra, which again, like if he made it all up, um, some of these things don't line up. Um, was was so. that the was that the visit to the hill that he had Emma with him? Yeah. So it's when he finally, you know, was supposedly got it. And I think, I mean, this is one thing that we, we, so he painted a wagon. Wasn't that his neighbor's wagon? Wasn't that someone that was staying at his house? Yeah. I don't know all the specifics of it, but I know that Dino Quinn talks about, you know, there is some evidence, you know, there's a receipt that he bought black paint for that. Um, And again, I think it's hard for people to entertain this idea that he believes some of this stuff because these things sound really crazy, like seeing an angel, um, seeing, getting these plates. But I think there seems to be a lot of evidence that he was having these experiences, seeing these things and actually thought he was going to get these metal plates was probably seeing metal plates. But then I think at some point, and, and this doesn't so much, our whole narrative doesn't hinge on this, but it is interesting to try to figure out what actually he believed and what was part of this pious fraud. Um, but I think at some point he probably realized, oh, these are like a spiritual object that exist in like a different realm. And I can still channel and connect with that. And that's what, I mean, there's a lot of these books that, I mean, there's a retranslation of the New Testament called the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus Christ, where this guy channeled it from this other realm. And uh, I mean, these people really believe these things. And so I think it's something that you definitely need to consider. But yeah, the Book of Mormon, um, I think it's that's an interesting parallel yeah. that he kills Laban because he needs to bring this to save these people. And I think you can see Joseph Smith doing some things that are fraudulent because he maybe actually believed that he was bringing these spiritual truths. Maybe he, maybe he just made up the Book of Mormon, but they were a, a way for him to teach these people these truths that he was experiencing, these mystical experiences. Or maybe he actually believed that he was connecting and channeling something because he obviously had a, a, an ability to get into these states and um, do the stream of consciousness. Well, and people around him knew it because he, even as the young, I think the, one of the younger people in the crew of, of treasure diggers that he was running around with, he was the guy that knew where the treasure was, right? They were looking to mm -hmm. him. He, he would be the one that would claim that he had the, the vision of the treasure. He would tell them where to dig. And, uh, and, and then he would tell them when, it, when there wasn't treasure there that something had gone wrong, somebody had done something wrong, or they didn't do the ritual just right. Mm -hmm. And the treasure had slipped lower than it dropped farther into the earth and they can't, can't get it. And that's another thing that like, again, doesn't quite line up to me if it was all fake. I mean, in D. Michael Quinn's book, this is um, early Mormonism in the magic worldview. So D. Michael Quinn was a historian and he really researched the magical um, folk magic uh, esoteric. So esoteric are traditions like Gnosticism and Freemasonry and Kabbalah and these different uh, traditions that are really focused on like personal experience. There's a lot of connection with altered states of consciousness and, and psychedelics or substance use. Um, so it's right mixed in with magic. And, and he also, you also realize that 
magic is really inextricably linked with these potions are things that brought people into different states of consciousness and the spirits and the entities they saw. I mean, this is something they were experiencing. Um, but yeah, so he talks about in his book about different occasions that like um, Joe Smith senior, you know, was rounding people up because they like knew there was a, a treasure somewhere. So, I mean, it seemed like, I mean, why would they, uh, there were some instances where it doesn't quite make sense that everything's a fraud. I mean, I think they, there's a lot of evidence that he believed to, to some large degree, but there's always obviously, I mean, even yeah. gurus, you see these people that are very well-respected. Um, they also end up getting into issues with sexual impropriety. And I mean, that's another thing in the Book of Mormon that like the Book of Mormon is really strongly worded against polygamy, um, which from a Jungian subconscious perspective, um, you would say if this is a piece he of was suppressing it, he was suppressing a inner desire. Um, and then what happens later in his life is he obviously gives into that. Um, well, yeah, he has, he has the power and the station to make that a reality. And he, uh, maybe it's one of those things like it, it could be justified if, if, if he was having experiences where he was feeling like he was talking to God, eventually God told him to do that. Of course, God is just inside of you. So he's talking to himself and himself eventually gives him the permission. He gets permission from his in inside to no longer suppress that. But it, but yet there was obviously still, it wasn't open, right? It was very, even now, the uh, certainty around that it, it's very clear to historians who, who look really closely at it, but for a lot of people who want to believe that he didn't, you can, you can make that case. You can connect the points that make the case that he wasn't a polygamist if you neglect a lot of the historical information. Uh, but he kept it, he certainly kept it under wraps, right? Like he was trying to, he wasn't out, out in the open, apparently at least not with everybody about that. So maybe there was some part of him that still knew, still was suppressing that as like, almost like he was in denial while he was doing it. And, and I think... and it well, I just, I don't know enough about how other people viewed what he was doing, other than it's pretty apparent that, that neighbors were upset because he posed a risk to you know, their daughters or their wives or whatever. So it became out in the open at some point, or at least it became known. And I think, I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I see a lot of things from a Jungian perspective and you, Jung was all about like integrating our shadow side, you know, positive, negative polarity, light, darkness. And instead of like repressing, you know, I think he said that which is, is repressed persists. Um, it's about like, having self-compassion, recognizing these things and, and finding a way to healthily integrate um, these things that are inside of all of us. Um, and when people repress those and they have this guilt and shame and judgment um, and they just try to hold on to the light and they just try to view themselves as this light. And every time they do these dark things, they really get down on themselves and often try to really focus more on light and, and, virtue and um, uh, pious activity 
um, it makes the darker side more concentrated as well. And I think, I mean, you're seeing it more and more now of these church leaders in, in all churches, but I mean, I, I see a lot of them because I'm on some post-Mormon Facebook groups of leaders in the church um, with these horrific stories about, you know, either rape or child sex, sex abuse. And I think that, and these are people that are bishops or church leaders. And I think there's this cycle, especially in the church of this, um, you know, the guilt and shame around masturbation and pornography that like for some people becomes this very unhealthy cycle where they, they do these things oh, and sure. they really judge themselves and then they you know continue to climb up. You know, they try to be more pious and read their scriptures more and do these things. And then they just really get this unintegrated part. So, I mean, I see, I think it's really foolish to look at Joseph Smith or, you know, to look at Joseph Smith and not take into context, you know, his history and his trauma. Um, we both, have, both you and I are very into psychology and mental health and realize Everybody starts as a uh, blank slate baby, and then they're they're the product of their parents' traumas, intergenerational traumas. Um, I mean, he had a pretty traumatic childhood, really s severe poverty, and you know his typhoid fever and his surgery and the death of his brother Alpha. I mean, there's a lot of things that. Uh, I think made him who he is. It doesn't excuse what he did, but you really have to look at the whole picture and recognize that people are not um, two dimensional characters, but they often have an inner battle within themselves. Um, and yeah, I think that's what we want to do too, is to evaluate, try to psychoanalyze him. And it's not just about Mormonism because I think there's a lot of things to explore that make connections that strengthen the case around uh, kind of this Mormon origin story that are fun to dive into that we'll be talking about. The the Eleusinian mysteries or Eleusinian, I can't say that. Eleusinian. 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 Um, yeah, I mean, this, hopefully we'll be able to go into details about it, but this uh, a religion that has no name uh, and like that origins of Christianity uh, involving altered states of consciousness, uh, potentially psychedelics, and uh, the the things that lead into uh, philosophy that we'll cover, ideas of idealism, materialism, um, the evolution of thought and consciousness, and kind of where it was at different times in history, you can start to see what kind of how things could uh, emerge. Mormonism, I mean, Joseph Smith's world was around Christianity. So C Christianity was kind of the description for what the Western world was for a large part of its history, especially early American history. And yet there was these ideas also from the ancient world of, um, of occultism magic and so we'll we'll dive into some of those things science also is going to inform this podcast because i think of religion as like um like an evolutionary stage of us where we in our brains we have that part of our brain that the the lizard part of the brain right the part that 
kicks out the, the fear hormones that served us really well when we weren't in this, in the form that we are now, still serves us really well. It can also, uh, it can also hurt us if we're uh, overly anxious or overly fearful of things because of that part of our brain that's, that's activating. Um, and so religion is kind of like how that part of our brain throughout our evolution has stayed with us. We've got to learn to integrate it and work alongside it. We've got the frontal cortex. Now we can, we can be logical and rational. And yet we still have that part of us that uh, is kind of like a rabbit that wants to run from predators, right? The predators have changed. Um, but when we see things that we don't understand the mystery, when we see things that when things are unknown, sometimes that leads to fear and like religion as a part of the human's family story is a little bit like that part of our brain that we can't get rid of. We're not going to get it to go away. Uh, we're not just going to wave it away and say, now we have science. Now we have rationality. Now we have logic. We don't need this stuff. To me, that's a really important part of all of this because they, they say like, Oh, you can leave the church, but you can't leave the church alone. And, it's what what's happening, I think, is it's got it's still a big part. Like I consider myself still a big part of me is Mormon because it's my culture. It was how I grew up. It was 35 years of that belief system. I'm not just going to wave it away, make it just go away and move into, you know, um, thinking rightly or whatever. It's like there's there's things that we can learn through all of these topics we'll talk about and more that for me have helped me build this narrative for what mormonism is that explains it and fits it into the rest of how i see the world and in that process spirituality emerges out of it because i think reality is magic i think that like spirituality is a fundamental part of us religion is almost like it's it's kind of like a cicada and this, I don't know if this analogy is going to work. I just thought of it, but like how a cicada gets its, how it sheds its exoskeleton and it leaves it there and then it flies off. Spirituality is the cicada. The exoskeleton is religion. And everybody goes to the religion. We go to the cicada exoskeleton and we're like, this is, this is spirituality. The cicada has already flown off. Like the religion, the, it's like if you have a tent in the desert where you were conducting rituals or um, you were in these altered states of consciousness where you were open to some of these ideas about the oneness of everything, where things were going on with a community of people. And then they leave the tent or like the tent isn't it. The tent is just where it was happening and religion and and like the the trappings of religion i think are kind of like that tent that people can get caught up in thinking this is how i'm going to connect to the oneness of you know connect to god or whatever it is the tent's empty the cicada shell is just the abandoned exoskeleton and and so what we're trying to do i think to some extent is grasp onto that actual cicada by recognizing what religion is and how it like 
Mormonism came to be. And there's a lot of parallels with how Mormonism came to be and many other religions, including Christianity. It's like a little microcosm of the macrocosm that it sits inside. Well, I think, I mean, it's interesting, you know, you look at how science develop its, develops its theories and how we treat scientific theories and then spirituality or religious um, theories and how we treat that. I mean, science doesn't necessarily claim to be unearthing truth, like big T truth. They're basically saying, hey, we we see stuff going on and we're going to make laws and approximations of how to predict what's going on. And these aren't truth. They're, they're not the moon. They're the finger pointing at the moon. And so, and then, you know, we're going to make a set of laws or theories. And as long as they work, like, great, but they're not, they're just constructs that describe something ineffable. And then, so you've got Newtonian physics and it described things pretty well. Um, and then at some point you realize that, oh, you can make updated, you know, those laws break down. You can make updated frameworks and concepts that work at an even more granular level. And that's quantum physics. But in religion, um, they've got this problem because they claim divine authority and like, no, this is the truth. This is how it's worked. But it, it's trying to do the same thing. It's trying to explain the spiritual world through constructs, the idea of God and Satan. Um, I mean, it's, it's mythology, um, but they have a lot harder time updating their mm -hmm. uh, frameworks because of their claims. I'm going to go through some of these um, interesting connections real quick. So the Eleusinian Mysteries are basically uh, 2,000-year, it's a, a Greek ritual that went on for 2,000 years and that uh, was known about in 1837. It was mentioned in an LDS periodical in 1837. And so D. Michael Quinn says that, so, you know, we... We know the connection between Freemasonry and the Temple Endowment, which is interesting, but this is actually a much more interesting and more profound connection. So Quinn says that in 1837, when the Eleusinian Mysteries um, are mentioned in a church publication, they were described by published works at the time, um, including the Encyclopedia Britannica, as, quote, being revealed by God from the beginning of the world and passed on to worthy initiates through washings and anointings, a new name and garment, vows of non-disclosure, lesser and greater rituals, a presentation through drama, an oath of chastity, designation as prophets, priests, and kings, emphasis on attaining godhood and heavenly ascent past various guards to whom departed spirits must give magical passwords. So basically, Plato, Aristotle, Marcus Aurelius, these great philosophers, um, they would go uh, to, so people would go yearly, um, or this was held yearly, for 2,000 years, they would take a psychedelic drink called the Kaikion, they would watch a drama, they would apparently get a, a new name, a garment, um, do a lot of things that you see the overlap with the Temple Endowment. And this is what, I mean, Joseph Smith was familiar with these things, these are all part of these esoteric religions. Uh, and yeah, I think it's really trying important. To recreate it. Yeah, I think it's also really important to point out that it was supposed to be kept secret, mm -hmm. that it was punishable, punishable by death. Yep. And that there's some some evidence that shows you could only go one time in your life to 
to do that, kind of like in Mormonism, the parallel of taking out your endowments from the temple or going and doing the endowment ceremony one time for yourself. And every time else you're going back, you're doing it for uh, somebody else is the idea. Uh, so that punishable by death and secrecy, uh, certainly, and I don't even know if what Joseph Smith instituted as an endowment ritual, which originally was several hours long, I understand, um, but if it had the same kind of throat-slitting covenants that it at know, least they, did later until that was removed. They did eat a fruit, though, which is interesting. Um, there was ingestion of something involved in it. So, I mean, there's that. It's a huge part of our history. And there was also similar things that was going on in the cult or the rites of Dionysus, the Dionysian rites. And then there's a fascinating book called The Immortality Key, The History of the Religion with No Name that just came out uh, a couple of years ago with uh, pretty good evidence that the original Eucharist uh, was a psychedelic sacrament and that that morphed into basically... so these psychedelic or mind altering rights were safeguarded by women and, and because it was very dose sensitive. And then a few hundred years later, they were replaced by basically a placebo by the Roman Catholic church and having something that allows people to connect with and commune with and meet the divine, you know, doesn't, does make much room for a priesthood and churches and tithing and whatnot. So this initiated the war on women, basically, and this idea of witchcraft. You know, these things were uh, attributed to Satan and mothers and daughters. You know, that he finds some Inquisition records that shows that mothers and daughters were tortured and killed. You know, this idea of witchcraft. Interestingly enough, I mean, we think of witchcraft as this hysteria and this persecution of magic. But if you actually look into it, it was actually a persecution of black magic because some of the people that were accusing other people of being witches practiced like light magic or white magic. So, I mean, magic was inextricably linked with religion. Um, so there's a pretty good case for um, mind altering substances and psychedelic sacraments throughout history. And Mormonism is an interesting microcosm of yeah. proof of this happening um, and i think there's there, there's evidence of uh even around judaism with what uh moses did i mean moses went up into a mountain saw a burning bush there's plenty of bushes around that part of the world that can be that can uh can be burned can be um eaten or whatever that can create those kinds of experiences uh, Muhammad and yep. the Quran, right? Going up into a mountain, coming back down, and then producing the, the Quran. I think there's a lot of evidence that maybe um, psychedelics were involved there. That's something I haven't looked yep. into from that angle. But Well, the, yeah, the Holy of Holies um, in the temple, basically a hot boxed room of, you know, a lot of smoke in a confined mm -hmm. area. Um, there's pretty good evidence. Uh, circumstantial evidence about the anointing oils in the Bible being methods of um, topical uh, psychedelic or mind-altering substances. And this was something, so in Kirtland, 
in the Kirtland period, it seemed like the sacrament. So these, yeah, that was one of the big points in the um, book by Cody Nakoni. It was that, yeah, Joseph Smith was obviously accessing these states and you can do them individually through a variety of routes, but in group settings, it's really hard to get a lot of people into these states. Um, and so there's some pretty good evidence, both by accounts of people in and at, and outside of the church that, you know, the big Pentecostal Kirtland um, outpourings of the spirit were attributed to fasting and the wine, but also likely something going into the wine. I mean, there's some accounts of Samuel Smith in Kirtland vomiting and other people like just being kind of taken out for a couple of days and a lot of not so spiritual things happening that some of the early church leaders were really concerned about like, Hey, this doesn't really seem to be of God. So, um, and then in the Nauvoo period, it seemed like that was kind of locked down to more of the school of prophets using the anointing oils. Um, so they would basically have, they would all be having their visionary experiences that would happen after they got anointed with these oils. And then they would last like 10 hours. I mean, they would go, there's accounts of Joseph Smith going home from these sessions and like the visions and stuff would still be happening at home and like through the night. Um, so, but again, like the focus away from uh, the route, but just these altered states of consciousness and what they mean philosophically. So yeah, the Zionetic brethren were some people in this effort of cloister that were practicing Rosicrucianism, which is sort of like Freemasonry. And they were, you know, trying to do the Freemasonry things. So they would fast for 40 days. No, they would, yeah, they'd have an initiation rite for 40 days. They had a temple basically that they built called, they named it Zion. This was in the 1700s. Um, they did baptisms for the dead. They ordained each other to, they were ordained to the holy priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Um, and they drank a psychedelic uh, elixir, prima material or something. Um, it seems to be psychedelic. And then, and then there's a lot of things that just show up in Mormonism that, um, come from have a lot of overlap with these esoteric traditions that focused on egypt they focused on magic they focused on um people like melchizedek and enoch so there was a book of enoch that was translated um, as pseudepigrapha um, that was translated in the 1820s and has a lot of overlap with joseph smith's story of enoch in his translation of the bible uh, kabbalah is a esoteric form of judaism and he was familiar with that um, and had, there's Joseph Niebauer was a Jew that was a convert and came from, or was familiar with Kabbalah and was teaching Joseph Smith Hebrew. But Kabbalah talks about Elohim. It talks about a council of gods. It has the ideas of reincarnation, which there's a couple of accounts that Joseph Smith taught reincarnation in secret to um, people and Orson Pratt and Orson Hyde um, both continued to teach that too. Um, there are a couple of Joe Smith's wives that state that he taught reincarnation. And, well, then... and it's amazing how much you, how much I've learned uh, kind of as I've gotten older and, and looking at this stuff from a different perspective of what Mormonism is today compared to what it was mm -hmm. then and its evolution and what was added over time by different leaders, different uh, presidents of the organization at, at different times. Yeah. And it, uh, Gnosticism. Uh, is really fascinating. So that's the more esoteric, mystical form of Christianity um, that eventually got, you know, 
persecuted and stamped out by the Orthodox Church. Um, but some of these ideas that Mormons feel are unique, the idea of the fall being good. Um, I mean, Gnostics taught that the fall was good and that Yahweh was actually this demiurge, this middle manager that was kind of trapping us in this physical matrix and that Satan was, you know, the serpent was actually Sophia, who is this kind of more outer container of oneness and that she gave this spark of life that um, through letting Eve eat the apple, it allowed them to have this knowledge of like, oh, there's something more than this matrix. Um, and in the, so in the Dead Sea Scrolls was kind of the first Gnostic scriptures that were, uh, came onto the scene in the 1940s. And it's interesting because the church has some interest in it because it does correspond with some of this stuff. Um, so one of the books in the Dead Sea Scrolls is the Apocalypse of James. And this is an account of Christ teaching James that he's basically trapped in this matrix and that when he dies to be able to get out of this physical world um, to the, the highest degree of heaven, he would have to tell these angels, these angel demons, uh, he'd have to give them some passwords. They would ask him some questions. He'd have to give them some passwords to be able to get. So, I mean, a lot of, uh, overlap with uh, Mormonism, um, but then now with my with my past kind of let's say believing goggles on. Let's say when I was fully believing and seeing the church, believing that the church was what it claims to be is kind of how how I say it. At one point, I believed that the church is what it claims to be, and uh, because I think that question of like well, do you think the church is true? That That's almost an impossible question because it's like, well, what do you mean true? Um, if, is it what it claims to be? No, but there's something there to talk about. Uh, and so in, in when I have those goggles on, I would say that what you just mentioned would be evidence mm -hmm. for it. And I find this so fascinating that we can say the same thing from one perspective, it means something. And we could say the same thing from another perspective it means something totally different, or it means the opposite. So it's almost like, is it top down or bottom up? In other words, did, did all of these places and people and time throughout history, was it all culminating into show that Mormonism is the true religion that everyone needs to get, uh, get it together with? Or do these things emerge from back in time and so, and they keep re repeating almost, right? Like did, um, did the endowment, was, is the endowment the ultimate form of that in all of these other forms which you've mentioned between the Zionitic brother, the Eleusinian mysteries, uh, or these teachings of Kabbalah, like was that just the incorrect, corrupted form of it? Was it the um, incomplete form of it. And Joseph Smith restored it all right. Because from that perspective of a believer, they would hear that same story and it would be faith affirming. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, these, these things have all happened throughout time. See, it's pointing to it. And I tend to see everything now as more of a bottom up phenomenon, like emerging out from underneath, 
from us from the past. So it's interesting because yeah, I think if you if you don't take a a look at the all of the evidence and the whole big picture, yeah, some of these things and you see some of these YouTubers are kind of focusing on these. Oh, wow, like Joseph Smith, like there's an interesting overlap between like this concept and some of these other things that evolved in New Age spirituality. Um, and if you cherry pick here and there, yeah, it looks like that. But if you look at everything, yeah, the narrative that we're putting together and presenting is basically there's all these, there's all these different traditions, Eastern philosophy, um, Western religion, and then these esoteric forms of, you know, Judaism and Kabbalah, Gnosticism and Sufism is, is Islam's esoteric, more mystical form. Um, then there's Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism and then just kind of magic in general. Um, they have so much overlap. Um, and the reason why they have that overlap is the, the altered states of consciousness, these expanded states of awareness, whether it's psychedelics or meditation or whatnot, um, like that's the key that binds these all together. And this, these states of consciousness um, reveal fundamental truths about uh, reality. I mean, they're based on this concept of gnosis or like experiencing reality. And Joseph Smith did a, a really impressive job at integrating a lot of these different things into a, it's kind of like a minimal viable product of new age spirituality. Cause there's, there's a lot of overlap actually with, you know, some of the stuff that Joseph Smith uh, was teaching and then like new age spirituality, cause new age spirituality is sort of the evolution of these esoteric traditions again, with a big emphasis on these states of consciousness. So yeah, this goes back to this narrative or hypothesis that, you know, there is fundamental truths that are revealed, philosophical truths revealed through um, these states of consciousness, meditation, breath work, you know, a lot of different ways you can do it. And so, yeah, so, philosoph so philosophy, um, you know, this is a big thing in Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith thought that all matter was, um, all spirit was matter and he had a monist view that everything of, was of one substance. So we're going to talk about the yeah, philosophy, the ideal of the idea of materialism, which is generally what pervades in Western scientific thought is that everything is physical matter and from physical matter, you know, consciousness arise and arises. Um, but what I feel, uh, is, more consistent with what we see um, spiritually and and also scientifically with with quantum physics, which we'll get to next, is idealism and this idea that like consciousness is actual actually the bottom. The, yeah, and this is what several um, Schrodinger and Max Max Planck, um, so these quantum physicists, like this is what they uh, were really set on, and there's several quotes about that. So, yeah, and then this all, ultimately, I'm a very logical, rational person. And for me, I have a scientific background. So quantum physics is, I think, one of the things that we bring to, so philosophy and quantum physics, I think, is what we hope to bring to this discussion, because there's a really good discussion on psychedelics, um, this narrative of Mormonism. D. Michael Quinn did so much you know, amazing research on magic and occultism. But tying it together with just like the weird things that we see in quantum physics, the double slit experiment, um, experiment this multiple worlds hypothesis, 
um, many worlds view and just showing how really viewing what we're experiencing as fractalized segments of a universal consciousness um, is is the most scientific and holistic way of viewing things and and i think quantum physics is where spirituality and science come together and and we're going to discuss that not in a hand wavy way um, but I think that's, I mean, I feel pretty confident in saying that we have a narrative that really kind of gives a fleshed out picture of everything. And, and I think that's really what we need at this point. I mean, there's, we've become really siloed in, you know, some of these things, research on the psychedelics and Mormon narrative. I mean, it's really fascinating, but you have to expand like what philosophically do what does consciousness what does that mean then um, that all these traditions are saying the same thing that joseph smith was connecting up to these things and then more than just philosophy like how does that integrate to our scientific um, model and so near-death experiences past life memories and kids um, uh, paranormal psychology experiments I mean, these are all, they sound really woo-woo and crazy, um, but there's really, really good data that are coming out and some really good research that are showing very small effects, but really statistically significant. And just one by one, it's easy for materialist scientists to say like, hey, you know, that doesn't make sense because there, there's a vested interest. It's really uncomfortable to have to up, overturn your whole model of looking at things. And I view scientists very much as like people in the church that, you know, when they're presented with things that don't fit the narrative, you you really want to find the apologists that give you the answers that help you put that cognitive dissonance yeah. to sleep. But yeah, you got to stay in that confirmation bias feedback loop, whatever your dogma you're ascribing to, and so you you want to limit the. This is one thing I've found is the. Uh, it's almost like the more I learn about other things, um, the closer I get to God. And I know that sounds, I don't know what that sounds like, but it's like, all right, in the church, there's this notion that you are going to be God one day. And well, one of the features of this God is that he's all knowing. Well, how did he get all knowing? Had to have learned everything. And I find the it's very big contradiction that has kind of followed me my whole life under that belief system was that I was limited in what I could, what I could expose myself to. It, it was like, how am I going to learn everything if I can't explore other ideas and other things? It, it was like, uh, I served a mission for the church. I was in uh, Everett, Washington. I ran into uh, a Muslim once who I knocked on his door, he answered the door, he let us in. And he asked me how many people were in the church. And I said, at the time, I, I think I said 15 million, something like that, whatever the number was then. And he said, wow, um, yeah, that I, I belong to a single sliver of greater Islam that's a, that's a smaller sect that has 90 million. And you know, it was kind of this contest of who has more. I'm like, well, it's not about numbers, right? Uh, 
but he gave me a Quran. He took one off his shelf, gave it to me, and he took the Book of Mormon. He said, I'll read your book if you read my book. And I remember my companion at the time, we kind of joked about it, but I took it home and I put it on my desk. And so during personal study, I remember looking at it and I'm like, hmm. And there was this thing in the mission where, of course, you have to confine your exposure to anything, to, to everything. You have to limit your exposure to what you read or what you watch or what you listen to, the media. And for, for study, for personal study, it was like you have to do, you can only study, a mission rule was that you can only study what's in this particular missionary library, which included the, the Book of Mormon, other, other scriptures from the church, the Bible, and then some books that were written by um, past leaders of the church or whatever. So this was clearly outside of that. And I remember a personal study where I cracked it open and I'm reading it. And because I just had to know, I wasn't going to, I'm too curious. I had to know. So I crack it open, I'm reading it and Gabriel's in there, Adam and Eve are in there. Um, and I'm like, wow, this is, there's something going on here. This is a completely different book, but there's some of the same characters. And that curiosity has kind of always been a part of me. I'm really, really glad that it has. Because what we're talking about here is trying to integrate all of these things that on the surface might seem separate. And as a believing member, I probably thought they were separate. It's like, oh, science sits over here. And my religion sits over here. And we're talking about viewing these things in a way where they actually support each other, but not in a way that tells you that one church is the true church that you should belong to that you should, you know, it's almost like the, um, the churches want everybody focused on that exoskeleton of the cicada thinking that that's what it is. But we're talking about getting information from all of these sources and kind of circumscribing it into one great whole, as it were. And, um, chasing down that cicada because it's just flying away i think spirituality is a thing that is like an essence of a moment and um finding places where you can have that moment of that spiritual connectedness to it is what everybody i what i think a lot of people want to do and i think that you can have those moments inside religious situations but once our once our consciousness expanded beyond, it's like your mind and your heart need to be in harmony for those, for those, for the essence of those moments to come together. I think for to be in the con the, to be in the state of consciousness where you can be connected to it all to be connected, let's say connected to, to God for lack of a better word. But when our mind has been, is too far expanded in terms of what we learned about how the world came to be, what the earth is. We've learned these ideas around um, quantum physics, other things that like make it so that the, the heart can't be at full operating vibration for that spiritual connectedness without the mind being in the right state also, I feel like. And so for me, what we're talking about is a way to kind of gather it all in to, to look at all of these different ideas and find the connections between them to have an explanation, a narrative for what the Book of Mormon is and what the, what the, or at least the origins of Mormonism are that fit inside of everything else. Yeah. Without just dismissing it away. Yeah. And some of that as a fraud. And some of that requires, um, 
But I think when people leave the church, they often, I mean, they're, they're playing a game, they're on one team and they realize like, Hey, uh, there's something wrong here. And so what they do is they just switch teams. Um, yes. And it never comes into their awareness that you can actually quit the game and question the rules of the game and question the definitions and step back. You can be in the stands and just observe that it's a game. And yeah. And so like for me, um, I mean, I, I get a little uncomfortable uncom- with the, the word God, because for me, I always thought that the question, and I mean, you see people going back and forth and whether there's a God or not, and they're arguing as to whether there's a God dude that lives like this white yeah. hair, bearded guy, or there isn't. Um, but there's so many other definitions. Like for me, I, yeah, last year I ended up just, um, you know, I'd left the church, uh, six, seven years ago, but just kind of didn't come to any conclusions. Like, oh, this doesn't line up. I had no intention of circling back. And then last year really, you know, felt like, okay, I just kind of actually just let go of any specific beliefs at all and kind of went into nothingness into the void, start doing some meditations with Sam Harris, who like, if you look him up on Wikipedia, it says he's an atheist. Um, but he's a neuroscientist that's really into meditation. Um, and it's funny cause I was like, okay, I guess this is it God. And then I just started meditating where I was like, Oh, like I believe in God. It's just everything. I mean, it's the totality of the universe. It's like, it's not a mm-hmm. person. It's not an entity. Like it is me. It's you. It's, it's you. This, it's everything, you know, it's mm-hmm. this fractal. Um, but you just had, I had no concept of that perspective um, or you know, this, these ideas of pantheism or panpsychism or the idea that consciousness is um, the substance of the universe. Like none of these things, which is funny because these are fundamental beliefs in Hinduism and Buddhism and like the whole half of the world like believes this, um, but Mm -hmm. it's just was never in my awareness um, from a Western perspective and from a Mormon perspective. So you see these people arguing back and forth. I mean, it's, kind of interesting watching people argue about where the Book of Mormon took place and they're arguing whether it's in like North America or, um, and it's kind of like people arguing about Harry Potter as to like, whether something happens, there's still, you can still find some value in something without it having to be. um, So it's, yeah, you have to step back and question the assumptions upon which you've always, yeah, operated. Yeah, I think there's there's a really good book about the growth mindset, and um, I think that is a key element to if you if you plan to listen to this podcast or you find yourself listening to it, I, I would say that growth mindset is going to be a key part of this because I'm certainly not saying I have all the answers <clears throat> or that I'm even I have the credibility of science or philosophy or history or any of those these disciplines. Um, but I do have an open mind where ideas can come in and they can have a seat with the other ideas that are currently there and they can have a conversation and I can see, I can kind of mold them around, mold them over. And some of those ideas stay for a long time and some of them go and I'm comfortable with that because the fixed mindset would say that's off limits. I can't go there. Or someone talks about, um, you know, the mention of psychedelics in all of us, it causes some sort of, especially I think growing up Mormon, it causes some sort of like uh, reflex because 
of the connotation of the word. A big part of that is what the what has been done to uh, is how substances have been viewed, kind of in our society, in our culture, and the things that have gone on at the government level around different substances. It just all carries this baggage. And I think what's important for listening here and and letting these ideas have the conversation is that open mindset of like dispelling what you might initially cling to when you hear the word God. Let that definition open up. There's a, I don't know a better word because that's the word that we all use, but um, let that definition open wider and see what happens. Let the definition or understanding of states of consciousness open up and see what happens. I mean, our state of consciousness changes when we're hungry, changes when we have caffeine, uh, changes when we've got a lot of stress or we, or we're very tired or we see a baby being born right in front of our eyes. And I think that coming to this with that open mind, I, I plan to do that because I know I have a lot to learn here. Gabe is someone who, you know, I respect you and I want to learn a lot from you because I know you've gone through some, you've had experiences that uh, have informed the way you're kind of approaching this. And I want to share my experiences too, to the, to the extent that they're helpful or that they're interesting. Um, you know, I'm really excited to share them. This is going to be great. Yeah. I think, I, I think the key, yeah. One of the keys, like you said, is like being willing to let everything go and like, and that's one of the, when people leave the church, it's, um, I was thinking about today when I finally, I mean, I'd always had like doubts in the back of my mind, but every time I had a doubt, I approached it from, okay, I'm going to find the apologist answer that can put this to bed. I never actually approached it with real intent until finally when I did, which is funny because as a, as a missionary, you're asking all these people to be willing to let go of everything. Um, but and to search you, with real intent. Yeah, but and to be open church, to whatever answer. Yeah, you're supposed to yeah. Doubt, doubt your doubts. Um, but like the moment I finally was like, okay, I'm just going to go back to the drawing board and be open to whatever I find. Um, yeah, and I didn't come to a final conclusion other than like, oh, it doesn't add up the way that it was presented. I didn't really know how everything pieced together. Um, but it was a, I mean, it's a grieving process. Um, and most people that leave, I mean, they want nothing more than for it to be true. And when you're going through that, I mean, it's this terrible free fall, um, for a lot of people and it's so uncomfortable and your tendency is to reach out to grab onto something else. And most people swing to the other side and they're like, no, nothing's true. There is no God or there might be, but there's no way, you know, there's no higher meaning. I guess I don't like using that word, but there's no higher meaning. Um, and they become like really staunch atheists and atheists or, agnostics and like there's no way actually that you can figure out any truths um and they kind of cling to um yeah like just kind of close their mind around another perspective but there are some people actually that just 
they're comfortable enough being uncomfortable and they're this blank slate. And I think when you're in that state, when you're in the void, um, then you can actually get things on like the base level. And that's with these mystical experiences, um, what makes them so difficult to interpret is that when you have them or even like psychedelic experience, any altered states of consciousness, when you have them, they come through basically on the mental language that you have. So if you're a Christian, you believe in God and Jesus Christ, you have it, you're going to see God and Jesus Christ. Um, and so it's really interesting to hear about people like Denver Snuffer. Are you familiar with him at all? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I know a couple of people that have went through his movement on their way out. Uh, but he's this guy that has these mystical experiences. He's had the second comforter. So he's, you know, seeing Jesus Christ and he says like, you know, everybody can have this. And he wrote the book about it. Then he got excommunicated. But once you have this awareness and you're not committed to any specific framework, you can see like, oh, like this is what's going on for him, but it's coming through the channels that he knows. Um, but this is actually, you can see the connection between that experience for him or these people and these experiences for these other people that don't believe in Christ or God and they're not seeing it in that way. And then you can even, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, you can make a lot more sense of the world. Um, yeah, I think what you shared about the grieving process, certainly it, uh, I went through a period of just excruciating uh, pain, sadness, sorrow, fear, all of those lower lower vibration, lower energy states. And, um, it's a death. It's a death. You, and a part of you, a part of me died with that, but actually, um, Jesus said, you must be born again. Like, I think this is, this is it. What, what I see, I, what I see, I did with my three kids to, to leave the church, to have the gnosis for myself of this new kind of um, path, which is full of unknowns and still very open and still, um, you know, a work in progress. I, I see that as being equal to what my dad did, who had three kids who joined the church. I think it's the movement that's the important part. So going in, going out, it's that it's the movement that's the important part it's because it's the it's chasing that cicada kind of thing and so i think you do uh, have these two really loud voices and there's kind of a moment right now i think that we're both somewhat aware of which is like uh, people are leaving the church there's a lot of media that's being produced here we are in a podcast um, a lot of media a lot of voices and they're kind of tending to be one side or the other, like you've said. And hopefully this is that, an, another alternative to that, a, a middle way almost. I mean, um, like a bringing together instead of just deconstructing. Yeah. Recontextualizing instead of tearing down. It's like your house is burned down, it blew up, the church isn't true, you're wrecked, you're lying in the wreckage. And for people that are in that, you know, I don't want to make light of that because it's terrible feeling. And I think people can be in it for a long time and you can also just become numb to it and move on and try and just like close it, close the door on it. 
but you've got to make something now. And some of those pieces that are in the fire, that are in the wreckage, that are in the rubble, some of those pieces are still very valuable pieces. And then there's got to be new material come onto the job site that you construct with and those, those things together using what you have, but being open to the changed form of it. It's been burned or it's been melted or it's, it's gone through something to change its state. Maybe it's more refined. Maybe it's closer to what it really is. And then using that to construct, that's kind of what I'm thinking this whole process is for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Constructing. Yeah, I guess it's a good um, time to share our, I guess, purpose or reason for the podcast. For me, yeah, I mean, I think that I had no intention of circling back to Mormonism or contextualizing things. It's just as I explored Eastern philosophy and meditation and start seeing all these connections and new age spirituality and realize like, Oh wow. Like I actually see, I, I see what Joseph Smith was doing and then just got kind of got deeper into the rabbit hole and realized like, Oh, I was, there's actually a lot of history of his connection with occultism. And there's this, you know, this altered states of consciousness and then actually everything clicked together. I think the people that I see benefiting from this is both people in the church that, you know, find a lot of good, valuable spirituality and meaning and have really meaningful spiritual experiences in the church. And I think the church can produce really powerful spiritual experiences more so than probably main, mainstream Christianity because it's so, so much based off these esoteric traditions that are based off really fundamental truths of the universe, although they're, they're pretty d distorted adaptations with Mormonism. But I mean, they're the concept of eternal progression and becoming gods like this is this is the concept that's at the heart of esoteric and new age spirituality that we have the divine within us. Yeah. Um, and so those people that are in the church and have these really meaningful experiences, uh, but there's also a lot of cognitive distance and they're often try to, when the shelf gets heavier and heavier, um, but it looks like the only alternative is to just step off the cliff and say, Oh, this is all made up because I mean, you've got the CES letter, you've got, Mormon stories. You got a lot of stuff that's largely just focused on deconstruction and are not aware of consciousness philosophy. Um, it's just kind of the spaghetti tactic of throwing stuff at the wall and just pointing out that all of these things don't add up, which it's true. They don't. Um, but then also you've, you've got a lot of people that are out of the church and that are in like existential, you know, crisis where they just like, what is true? Do I believe in Christ or in God? Like, and they have never considered well, actually another con another way you can believe in God, or you can, you can have, find Christ really meaningful and realize like the way he's interpreted the Bible is actually probably not, you know, what he was saying and his experience in the garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Transfiguration, Transfiguration. Oh, all these actually make a lot more sense when you understand expanded states of awareness and, many of the things actually that are even made it into the Bible do fit into esoteric and kind of spirituality, which I think is very different than religion. Um, or you have these very logical, rational, scientific people that think that, you know, atheism, agnosticism, that there, there is no room for spirituality, um, but they're based very much on like, 
a classical physics um, materialist view, which I actually don't think the the edges of uh, edges of science are showing. And so for me, I think there's a very logical, rational, scientific uh, integration of consciousness and science and spirituality. And then, um, then there's another group of people that like, they just got transported into spirituality. They left the church. Um, but maybe they were into like esoteric energy healing or like if they ended up doing psilocybin or something. And I mean, there's a whole, there's the Mormons on mushrooms podcast. That's all into this new age spirituality stuff, but they actually don't, they haven't elucidated, um, much the esoteric connection and like the history of this in Mormonism, but it's very interesting because they just started exploring that now. So I think when, regardless of whether you have any, you see yourself being spiritual at all, I think even if you don't want to get into metaphysical stuff, like there will have very scientific, rational um, exploration of states of consciousness and, um, psychology, mental health, um, automatic writing, these things that make a much more compelling narrative about Mormonism. And I think actually, I mean, there's so many people on these post-Mormon forums that end up becoming trolls um, because they can't really process this anger. And, and, you know, I think anger is a healthy stage to go through but then they just end up like posting on the church's website and or uh, church posts, commenting on church posts or like on their feed. But to me, I think if they were actually informed about um, mystical experiences or informed about automatic writing, like these are actually the heaviest shelf items that you could tell a, a believing member is like, oh yeah, I think the true the first vision happened, just like all these other first visions that happened mm-hmm. and are still happening, and like. And here's how it fits into um, neuroscience and psychology and psychedelic research. Or like, oh yeah, I think the Book of Mormon, like is this really um, mystical thing that happened just like these other books that are very similar. Uh, I mean, those are the heaviest shelf items. And I think if you take some time to research this, um, you could be a much better troll uh, much more effective um, than than they are, so. Yeah, hopefully, you know, with any luck, there's a there's a wide audience with varied backgrounds at different stages of life and faith and spirituality that finds something of value here, and I uh, that's really what I'm hoping is we'll have topical episodes, right? So there'll be maybe some episodes that you don't finish or you share with a friend because it was something very specific that you find a value. Uh, so that's the plan is to have um, maybe pieces that can be brought into your reconstruction, or if you haven't deconstructed, pieces that can strengthen your your house of faith or spirituality or whatever it is that, uh, that draws you to these topics. And hopefully some interesting stuff. It'd be great if we could bring guests on the, on the show at different times and talk to people that are very specialized or experience so we can dive very deeply into some of these topics or hear other viewpoints. It's all about uh, connecting and it's all about sharing. And I think that we've got, uh, there's a certain energy about this that uh, I think is going to be really positive. I think positivity is 
the theme here that it doesn't have to be a bad, you know, church is not true. And so I'm going to leave and everything sucks now. Um, in a lot of ways, life is better than I could have ever imagined outside of it. And I think that's being a voice of optimism and hope for that and experiencing that is uh, one possibility. Yeah. Um, I guess we could do a quick intro of ourselves and kind of how we got there. Um, so yeah, I was born and raised in the church. I was really, really all in black and white thinking really exactly obedient, which helped break my shelf eventually because, um, yeah, I was very logic, logical, scientifically minded. And I just kind of had stuff that I couldn't quite reconcile. Um, but I kind of had this split brain of most of me was materialist, scientific, rational. Um, but I believed in the church or wanted to believe in the church, went on a mission, um, sealed in the temple. And then I left the church six, seven years ago, um, just cause I finally approached, I had a friend actually that left and he was the, well, he left and he just talked about how beautiful his life was. And I didn't have any fuel to put into the, oh, he was offended or he wanted to sin or whatnot. But I mean, I was reading scriptures, praying every day, but I finally just took a step back and yeah, approached it just as a, with a clean slate, just decided it wasn't what it said it was. Um, and then just kind of drifted in agnosticism, never really figured out, figured I'd find any answers. Um, but then last year, my life kind of fell apart, burned down, was going, you know, started going through a divorce and I just dove deep into like figuring out my own childhood stuff and mental health and psychology and attachment and, um, started meditating and, uh, listening to Alan Watts and learning about nonviolent communication and, um, just went down all these rabbit holes and, uh, things just really shifted for me and ended up being launched into like spirituality, even though I had no intention. I mean, I didn't know that there was any difference between spirituality and religion. Um, but so my experience with mystical states or altered states of consciousness, I actually went through, um, endogenous states that often can come with just really huge life shifts, whether you're doing work in therapy, you know, going through divorce, just rethinking things where I had these really profound, um, moments of like feelings of bliss and visual changes of like things just becoming super crystal clear, kind of going from like 720p to 4k, um, really depth of colors, like everything looked like an HD photograph and this like feelings of oneness and connection. And this was as I was learning about like Hinduism, which had multiple, these are called state experiences. I mean, they had a lot of overlap with mystical experiences that I didn't know anything about at the time. So I really didn't know what was going on, um, but they were beautiful and amazing and really profound. Um, and I, that's when I started like making all these connections with like stuff in Mormonism and Eastern philosophy and, and how it connect with Mormonism. And then, um, I mean, later realized that, uh, there's a 
we'll put in the show notes, but a Psychology Today article that talked about drug-free psychedelic experiences and the research calls them spontaneous spiritual awakenings, um, Hindu terms like a Kundalini awakening, um, but these are just concepts of these expanded states of awareness. Um, they have a lot of overlap with like near-death experiences too, but really, I mean, the research shows they're really, really profound and life-changing and so much overlap with like exogenous um, psychedelic experiences, um, but people can do it through breath work or meditation, but these were in like daytime interacting with people. Um, and so just really, I was kind of transported to this mountain peak and then I had to figure out with my rational scientific brain, like how this all made sense. And then that's how I like dove, dove deeper into quantum physics and philosophy and um, origins of Mormonism. Somehow I stumbled upon that book, Psychedelic History of Mormonism, Magic and Drugs, and then just realized when I wasn't holding on or forcing anything to fit, it actually all just connected. And then, you know, I can look at like Denver Stuffer's experience and be like, oh yeah, that's what was going on here, except he just had it through this lens. Um, so for me, it was a really bizarre, but beautiful and amazing experience. I have, um, you know, a little bit of exposure with, you know, some prescription ketamine for anxiety and ADHD that kind of helped connect the dots and realizing like, oh yeah, this, you know, exogenous, endogenous, um, it's actually not about the modality. It's like there are expanded states of awareness, consciousness that help you really understand, have these gnosis experiences. Um, and yeah, so that's my journey. And then I'm just fascinated with mental health and the amazing things that are coming down the pike with, um, a therapy and psychedelics. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. And I'm sure in future episodes, we'll maybe dive into more detail of some of those experiences you've had and what came out. And I will give my brief kind of introduction at this point. I was born in the church also. Um, my parents were baptized a year before I was born. They had already had three children. I was the fourth. Um, and then I uh, was was raised. I have a younger brother also, but I was raised in the church and was as believing. I, I, I feel like I was as believing as I could have been. I read the Book of Mormon by myself for the first time when I was like 12, 11 or 12. Uh, read it multiple times before he served a mission. I was actually surprised in the MTC at the number of the number of missionaries that were learning about the Book of Mormon or learning or like reading it for the first time. My family read it multiple times together. We'd wake up early before school. Um, there was, I was constantly in a state of prayer. Um, not constantly, but often I would be praying. Even as a teenager, I was praying when I was in high school. I was praying very regularly. Uh, served a mission, became an assistant to the president on the mission and got home and met my my best friend who I married and we were sealed in the temple doing everything I mean doing everything just exactly right um, of course making mistakes along the way and having some doubts 
my mission actually exposed me to a lot of church history and some of the conflict and incongruities there. And it's like the place where you could be best equipped, I think, to handle some of those, handle seeing some of those things. So it effectively didn't shake me. It wasn't church history, I would say, that caused me to lose faith or feel like there was something wrong. But, uh, you know, that shelf, that proverbial shelf that's described as a place to put doubts until you have an answer for. And over time, that shelf gets heavier until eventually it breaks. Um, and my shelf was more like learning about other religions, learning about other people, learning about other experiences and other parts of history that made it so that Mormonism wasn't this was no longer just this unique thing that everything was pointing to, but instead Mormonism was just kind of one spoke on this wheel of time. And I, in the last couple of years, specifically what brought me out ultimately was um, kind of my own experience with some mental health challenges, but my, but really a, a physical uh, autoimmune disease that I developed, which um, really limited what I could do was changing. I was on the course with it that my life was going to be altered pretty drastically, kind of confronting the realities of that, which led me into um, just a lot of research about myself, which was through through philosophy, psychology, trying to learn everything I could about how I was going to handle my life in a completely different way than I than I thought it was going to happen. Um, ultimately, I through a had a gnosis experience i had my own psychedelic experience um that you kind of I, I realized that my brain is interpreting everything and giving it all meaning and there's other meaning that it can give it and there's it's, it's like for a second you glimpse through the net what's what's behind the net or um, if you have a piece of paper, if you have a piece of lined paper and all, this, all these lines or you're drawing lines on this paper and what seems like a lot of what life is is understanding where all these lines are and, and more and more lines, more and more division, more and more um, boundaries. But it's like for a minute seeing the paper and recognizing that it's actually just just the paper, you know? So I'm sure we'll talk more in depth about some of that stuff in my, my experience, but it led me to ultimately just ask the, the hard questions that I was finally going to take the things off the shelf and look at them and figure out what they were. And I found that Mormonism wasn't up here and all the other religions were down here, but all of religion was just a part of the human family, the human experience. And it was spirituality that that I had found value in all of those years growing up, and that that didn't quit. I didn't quit feeling the spirit when I left the church. Um, it's something that I still feel all the time. It's just I would use different terminology for it than feeling the spirit now, but effectively it's the same thing. Revelation still comes probably in the last couple of years. It felt like it was coming fast and uh, like a hose that just opened up. And that word revelation has connotation inside the church from 
receiving something outside when I think of it now as just uncovering something from that's already inside you. So inside me, it's learning. It's learning about myself led me out of the church. Ultimately, learning enough about what I what I am, my relation to everything. And it's been really difficult to stop, um, I guess. It, let me say this. I sent my mission papers in when I was 19, where you apply to go on this mission. I sent that in with so much conviction, knowing for sure that was what I was supposed to do. And that was the path that I was supposed to be on. And I sent a letter to the church to have my name removed from the records with that same surety, with that same conviction, because it's always just been this, like me being guided down this path and almost like I'm just experiencing it and it's happening. And, um, yeah, that's my introduction for now. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yes, the next, um, I guess in word to, note how we met and then also introduce the next episode. So I, I wrote kind of an integration of this whole basically theory of everything tying in philosophy and quantum physics and consciousness and all these overlaps with Mormonism and new age spirituality and esoteric traditions, um, reincarnation, Saturday's warrior type stuff. I'll tell you where Kolob is, where I think it, like what it connects up with. Um, and so I, I wrote that all together and then posted and that's how Eld and I came together. But so I've got po that posted on a sub stack um, and I've got a recording of that. So that'll be what we post next. And it's like, it's just kind of a condensed, not condensed, but it's pretty comprehensive, comprehensive enough that it goes over kind of everything, but it, I mean, it's really wide ranging, um, but each of those things, I mean, reality is a fractal. So each of those individual topics I think are fascinating and we'll dive in, you know, we've got a friend who's a Mormon researcher and also knows a lot about, uh, psychedelic research and also knows a lot about occultism. Um, and I think that it would be fascinating to bring people on that, you know, really know their psychology, or I've got a friend who is a Reiki practitioner and there's so much of an overlap between Reiki and the priesthood that it's, you know, you can see how it's the same thing, um, except Reiki allows women. Uh, and so I think it'll be interesting to like bring these people on that don't know anything about Mormonism and just kind of show how Mormonism is Joseph Smith's adaptation, amalgamation, integration of these esoteric, things, new age spirituality. Um, and then probably just some episodes on us, uh, talking about different things. Um, even like, yeah, there's so many different things we can chat about and it'll be fascinating and hopefully, uh, give people a different perspective. I mean, there's a, there's a big, I think appetite for people. I mean, it's interesting to see what's happening outside the church. Uh, Mormon stories has had an episode on somebody doing, mushrooms and that like she was all in on the church and then she did it for mental health reasons and so that that's kind of going in that space there's mormons on mushrooms podcast that talks about a lot of spirituality stuff and they're they've got cody nicone and brandon crackett on there who 
we're going to be doing a um, a documentary on the kind of psychedelic or entheogen um, aspect. And then, but within the church, it's interesting because there's people that are shifting more progressive and kind of watering things down to becoming kind of more mainstream Christian. And then there's other people that are like going to the fundamentals and the, I don't know, there's a lot of different things going on Mm. within the church. Yeah, it's a bit of a schism. Well, I think everywhere in life, in all aspects of culture and our society and kind of globally, there's, it's a, it's an age that's turning over. It's the hinges of time, right? It's like change is the constant right now and adaptability and, and evolving in real time is what we're all effectively doing to manage that. We've got AI around the corner, psychedelic revolution, mental health, a lot of fascinating things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all converging. Yeah. So thanks for joining us. Good seeing you, Eldon. And yeah, you too, Gabe. All right. Take care. Thank you.